Well, Resurrection Sunday has come again, but not everyone is smiling. Now, we smiled when we sang, He called my name, and I ran out of the grave. And if you've been transformed by the grace of God, then you couldn't help but smile, right? On the outside and on the inside. This is the paradox of Easter. And of course, I like to refer to this day as Resurrection Sunday, just so we steer clear of any association with how the world would define Easter. But Easter is the holiest day on the Christian calendar. But not everyone shares our joy this morning. Some people don't care. Uh, Some people don't believe. Still others don't know what to believe about Resurrection Sunday. And some are very, very angry at the thought of a man rising from the dead. Why? Because it challenges everything they think they know about the world that they live in. Well, Resurrection Sunday reminds us in the biggest way possible that God plays by His own rules. He does. On this day, we realize that He doesn't always do what we expect. Sometimes He does what we least expect. Often, he does it in ways that defy our understanding, such as the virgin birth, when Mary is told by the angel that with God, all things are possible. 1 Corinthians 15 is the classic passage of Scripture given in the Bible on the resurrection. What better way to honor the Son of God than to to handle the lengthiest text in the Bible, but for your benefit, we won't do All the verses of 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 28 today. And I want you to hear two things that are pointed out here that are vitally important. The fact of the resurrection, but that's not enough for you today to be saved. Now, Christianity rests not on the evidence of an empty tomb. It rests upon the event of the empty tomb. Correct? However... This is evidence that demands a verdict from you today. So the evidence that Paul is going to give us is vitally important. However, the implications and the meaning of the resurrection is personal for you and me. It's not enough just to believe in the fact of the resurrection. You have to apply the significance of it to your life in order to be a child of God. So let's own Resurrection Sunday Honor the Lord and stand and read this incredible text of Scripture. Please follow along. Don't daydream for a few moments. Uh, Keep your mind on the text and let it speak to you. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, since you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, that would be known as who? Peter. Then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, Paul would be saying, Check it out. You can ask them. Go ask the witnesses and see what they would have to say to you. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, 
and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, we are all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. To God be the glory. You may be seated. It's a wonderful time of the year, isn't it? It is. Of course, if you've been watching the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, you probably have noticed that there are a few things on there that are contradictory to the Bible. Correct? It's always that way. We'll have something pop up each year around this time that on the History Channel about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or if you've uh, perused through the checkout line and looked over at some of the magazines in the aisles, you'll see some kind of new story about the crucifixion and resurrection every year like a broken record about every form of media that there is. They come up with stories about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you on the authority of the Bible that these stories are not believable. They're not. A few years ago on Discovery Channel, you may remember this one, they claimed to have found the body of Jesus. Don't you love this one? Yes, on Discovery Channel, they have found the body of Jesus. And the reason they knew they had found the body of Jesus was simple. They had proven it by DNA. There were some boxes found known as ossuaries that had several Jewish names on them. Jesus, Miriam, Maria, I like this one, Hosea, Jose, I'm sorry, Matthew and Judas. And a statistician gave the news that the bones that were found 
Actually, there's a 1 in 600 chance that it belonged to the body of Jesus. Absurd, huh? 1 in 600. They've narrowed that thing down, correct? That it belonged to Jesus. And after interviewing a few New Testament scholars that are hand-picked and plucked from the Jesus Seminar, and you know about these guys, don't you? The quest for the historical Jesus, these guys don't believe anything that the Bible teaches. They uh, concluded, check this out now, they concluded that they had found the body of Jesus in the ossuary in this box. And of course the DNA proved this was actually a great find for Christianity. Instead of debunking the resurrection, they come up and say, this is really a great find for Christianity. Why? Because it proves that Jesus actually really lived. Okay. I suppose they had never read 1 Corinthians 15. It's not enough that he lived. Are you getting this? It's not enough that he was a historical figure since Jesus' resurrection in their mind was only a spiritual resurrection and not bodily. This is really not an insult on the Christian faith at all. So every year we deal with something that attempts to debunk the very cornerstone of the Christian faith. And the cornerstone of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Every, every series you've ever seen talking about the resurrection and crucifixion, if it's not based upon the Bible, their manuscripts end up being forgeries, it's been proven, and their evidence against a bodily resurrection is spurious. All these facts, they bring out, fade away quickly because in the words of Shakespeare, they are much ado about nothing. Now, I'm sure you understand that there's always been attempts to disprove the resurrection. You know what the first one was called? It was called the conspiracy theory. It basically says to us that after Jesus was crucified, his disciples got together and decided within themselves that they were going to steal the body of the Lord and they were going to claim that Jesus, in fact, resurrected from the dead. The theory was first reported actually in Matthew's Gospel. This is the only one that we actually find in the Scripture. But when the soldiers got back to the Sanhedrin and reported that they had been dazed subconsciously beyond comprehension by something, but actually said, well, the stone has been rolled away, and they told the story right, uh, who, they had, who had appeared to them, scared the very life out of these guys because... Jesus' deity is always an affirmation that mankind can't take. And the fact of the matter is, the Sanhedrin say, just tell the, other, tell the others that the disciples came and stole the body, and uh, you just got scared out of your mind, uh, remembering that you're fishermen, right? But these rusty Roman soldiers and centurions, you just overtook them or scared them out of their minds, and you were able to steal the body of the Lord. This ends up being the first story circulated immediately after the resurrection. His disciples took his body. End of story, right? Eusebius, who was an early church historian, said, what could we say about the ethics of disciples who would steal the body and claim a resurrection? Would these men together, band together, to invent all of this, including appearances that they never saw? Would they be willing to carry the sham all the way to martyrdom? Would they be willing to die for this lie that they concocted? Why not die for nothing, right? Why not endure all this torture and all the whippings for no good reason? 
Here are ordinary people, fishermen, not conspiring at the death of Jesus to come up with a way to steal the body. But according to the Bible, these are men who were fearing for their lives and hiding out. Not concocting some kind of story. Yet before it is over, these men will die as exiles for the Lord Jesus Christ. There is also the apparent death theory, or what's called the swoon theory. So we got a conspiracy, we got a swoon. I'm just giving you the top three of my favorites that are ridiculous, right? So the conspiracy and then the swoon theory. A German, uh, again, a German not-so-scholarly dude, in 1828 advocated this in what's called Protestant liberalism or classic Protestant liberalism. And another guy picked this up in the early 1900s and his name was Friedrich Schleiermacher. And he championed the swoon theory. It went like this. Jesus really was crucified. Yet on the cross, instead of dying, he passed out. And they placed his body in a tomb and all the cool atmosphere of the tomb, together with the dry air, helped the Lord Jesus revive. And he figured out how to get these 75 pounds of wet ointment linens wrapped all over his body and escape a sealed tomb. He then appeared to his disciples. And they actually were overwhelmed at his appearance. And so they began to concoct that he actually resurrected from the dead. In actuality, he only swooned and appeared to be dead, and he was revived. So you're telling me that after the violent beatings that are recorded in Scripture and by early historians, if you're telling me that the massive blood loss and the crucifixion and asphyxiation and a spear that would have penetrated his pericardial sac, his body was then wrapped in 75 pounds of myrrh ointment wrapped linens, and you're telling me that he just swooned and got out of that. You see, folks, these are unbelievable stories. Concocted because man can't handle resurrection. Man can't handle God defying the natural. It's all good to remember that the Romans were really good at killing people. It's also good. They were professional executioners. In recorded history, no one was ever taken off the cross that wasn't dead. So, again, this theory makes Jesus a total fraud and a deceiver, and his disciples total idiots. What did Jesus, what did they point out? Or what, what was pointed out in the, res, the very resurrection of Jesus Christ was not some kind of concocted story, but true victory over death. And then, of course, there's a wrong tomb theory. Don't you love this one? That in actuality, uh, when the ladies first went to the tomb, they just simply went to the wrong tomb. This was brought out as well by some kind of early liberal scholar. So after the crucifixion, they just went to the wrong tomb. People got lost, right? People got lost back then. They didn't have a GPS on their phone to take them to the garden tomb, right? They didn't have uh, Google Maps to get them back over to the garden tomb. So they just simply got lost. And when uh, the women were talking to the gardener, supposing it was the gardener, and the gardener says he is not here, that meant to them, he's not in this tomb. They leave out the part that he is risen, of course. Uh, liberal scholars do. But 
the women go to the wrong tomb. And, and after that, guess what happens? And then the Bible says after they brought the news back to the disciples, what do they do? Peter and John began to run to the tomb. Don't you love this story? I mean, I picture this with all my staff running, and I'm the one that outruns the rest of the staff. You know, you slide right in there, and they're just, you know, like fullbacks trying to make it there. But Peter and John are running to the tomb. And the Bible says that John looked in and immediately believed, and that Peter ran in and wondered what had taken place. So here's the deal. Peter and John also went to the wrong tomb. But the Bible again helps us. The Bible tells us that in Luke's gospel, we are told that the women followed and they saw the tomb and how they laid the body. Then they returned and prepared the spices and ointments. Luke chapter 23, 55 through 56. I think it's fairly obvious that once it began to circulate that Jesus Christ had come forth from the grave, if it were not so, all the Romans and Jews had to do was quickly bring the body and end the story. Right? Christianity would have never even begun. You understand that at Christianity sprung up from the resurrection. No resurrection, no Christianity. No 2,000 years of church history were it not for the resurrection. So it would have been debunked by producing the body. Just have a parade in the streets of Jerusalem. Carry the body around and it's over. But the fact is, folks, the grave could not hold him and they can't find the body even to this day, even if they prove it by DNA. Right? It's not the body of our Lord. So there are a couple of things about the resurrection I want you to consider this morning. Uh, I want you to consider the fact, not the conspiracy or the swoon or the wrong tomb. I want you to hear what Paul has to say about it. And you just heard it. Straight from the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 28. Here's the first thing I want you to tuck away. First, we must understand the historical, rea- historical validity or the fact of the resurrection. Again, Christianity doesn't rest upon the evidence of the resurrection. Christianity rests on the event of the resurrection. So it doesn't depend on our ability as Christians to to give good evidence. Yet, we do have to deal with an empty tomb, which is Exhibit A, right? It is, certainly, that the tomb is empty. So it is a historical event And there's evidence that plays an important role in believing the resurrection. Folks, it's clear that the New Testament valued the evidence of an empty tomb. It valued the evidence of the appearances of Christ. In Acts 1-3, we find that Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples, giving what the Bible calls in Acts 1-3, convincing proofs that He was alive. In Acts 17, we hear Paul speaking and preaching the Word. And he gives evidence from the Scriptures and from history that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And the crowning passage is, of course, the passage is found right here in 1 Corinthians 15. Notice, Paul does not simply say, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, He was buried, and on the third day, according to the Scriptures, He rose again. He didn't stop there. He could have. He could have... Given those three principles, that's the gospel. Life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And he could have said, end of story, you believe it, and you're on your way to glory, and your sins are forgiven. But he doesn't stop there. He gives evidence of the resurrection. He says, we preached it, and you believed it. He does, again, crucified, buried, resurrected, according to the Scriptures. But then he says, he appeared to who? 
He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve. And to 500 brethren at one time. How would you like to have that kind of witness standing in the court of law? 500 witnesses at one time. And then the Bible says he appeared to James and the apostles. We'll come back to that. And then lastly to Paul. But think about this. Paul demonstrates to us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that is to be proclaimed. And that is supported by evidence. So Paul will then proceed to give us the consequences in 1 Corinthians 15 of denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Talking about being realistic. This is very realistic for you this morning. If the dead aren't raised, then Christ has not been raised. Oh, the Corinthians were wondering if resurrection could take place. Remember, Pharisees believed in a bodily resurrection. Sadducees did not. That's why they were sad, you see, right? So the Pharisees believed that. But here in 1 Corinthians, they're arguing and, and debating about, hey, will our bodies be raised? And Paul says, if, if your body is not going to be raised, then Christ's body was never raised. Correct? And then the Bible says, then if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is worthless than in vain. In other words, folks, you came to church for no reason today. If Jesus Christ did not come forth from the grave, then our faith is in vain. We have no faith if Jesus Christ did not bodily resurrect from the dead. And then the Bible says your faith is worthless and in vain. And here it is. You are still in your sins if Christ did not rise from the dead. Paul demonstrates that this historical and objective, objective reality called the resurrection is the very hinge on which Christian faith turns. If there's no resurrection, we have no Christian faith. This is the very reason why skeptics target the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's why they would say, well, it's just spiritual. Because everything can be spiritual in our world, right? But when you're dealing with a real body that actually came forth from the grave, then Katie bar the door. That's a different story. So they totally understand how much the Christian faith depends upon the historical fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Paul will proceed in this chapter to give you the full range of redemptive purposes. You see, folks, he didn't just save your soul. He's going to raise your body one day. And not only that, but all things will be under subjection of the King of glory. And if he did not come forth from the grave, then none of that is going to ever be true for us. We're not going to preach all that today because you don't have time to hear it all. But this is what the New Testament affirms. Now question, does it really matter that he rose bodily? We have an old hymn that I don't like. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my... I don't like that song. Who cares if he lives in your heart? What's that got to do with the event of the bodily resurrection of Christ? I'm telling you, it is important that he lives in you. Got me? But that's not all that matters. It also matters that the tomb is literally empty. And whether he lives in your heart or not, he still lives. Amen? He does. He came forth. It's not enough just to say he lives in my heart. Anybody can spiritualize that. But the reality is, beginning with this, is that Jesus Christ came forth from the grave. In other words, the spirit of Jesus to the world lives on as sure as the spirit of Abraham Lincoln. That's the way the world sees it, right? Or JFK. Or Martin Luther King Jr. Paul would say, that doesn't save anybody. 
The spirit of someone doesn't save anyone. A bodily resurrected Christ, according to the Bible, can save anyone anytime. Because it proves who he is and what he said he would do and what he would accomplish. That's why it's so vitally important. If that's the only resurrection you can talk about, then you are pitied more than anyone else in the planet. That's what it says in this text. If there's no bodily resurrection, if Christ did not come forth from the grave, then you are to be pitied more than anyone else in the world because you believe it. We, what we are saying and what the Bible presents to us is that the very same body that was crucified and died and was placed in that tomb is the very same body, howbeit glorified, that raised three days later, physically, from the dead, and came out of the grave. That's who we're talking about. This is the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ, you don't have a half a chance of heaven. You're dead in your sins. Our faith is futile. It's in vain. It's worthless. And we are to be pitied above all people in the world. I want to remind you there is no other doctrine in the Bible of the resurrection other than this one. Okay? There is no other one. There is absolutely no wiggle room here. The glorious physical affirmation of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was the cornerstone for all the disciples. They not only believed that he rose from the dead, they believed it was because they not only believed it because he came forth from the grave, they believed it because they saw him. Are y'all listening? Evidentiary facts. Not only did he come forth from the grave, he appeared to them. They were not simply practicing the power of positive thinking. Along the lines of Norman Vincent Peale. They weren't practicing the power of positive thinking. They saw him face to face. If you will remember, they were not quick to believe the resurrection. Remember the stories? Many doubted. Just like Peter and John when they ran to the tomb. John believed and Peter wondered what happened. Uh, how about Mary? When she's standing outside of the tomb and she encounters the angels in John 2013, and, and she stood there weeping and said, basically she'd come to anoint the body of the Lord, but his body is not there and someone has taken him. So here she is doubting. How about the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus? And Jesus comes and begins to walk beside them, and they don't recognize that it's the King of glory, and they're sad and they're downtrodden, and Jesus says to them, why are you so sad? What's going on? And their, their, his response, their response is, where you been? Did you not hear what happened in Jerusalem? He was, we believed him to be our Lord. And he died. He, cruci he was crucified. And you know what the Bible says. They doubted, of course. And then when Jesus began to share, beginning with all the Scriptures, that means the whole Old Testament, that they testify of him, the Bible says that they burned with inside of themselves because of the Scripture He revealed to them, but they doubted. So, this is why when the apostles began to preach in Acts, they preached the resurrection. You know, have you noticed that as we've been going through Acts? They talk a little about the crucifixion, but the primary thing they preach is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's proof positive that our sins have been atoned for and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. Remember Peter's sermon? You killed Jesus, but God raised him up from the dead. Why? Because it was impossible for death to hold him. These disciples were scattered at his death. They were hiding in fear for their lives. And then after they had witnessed the resurrected Lord, 
they began to proclaim a message that would literally cost them their lives. And the most extreme persecutor was who? Absolutely, Saul of Tarsus. He came to faith because Jesus appeared to him in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus road. He saw the resurrected Lord. Now if you are here and you don't believe in the resurrection, you must answer a question that begs to be answered. How did Saul become Paul and what changed him? Historically, all extra-biblical writers, meaning people who did not write the Bible but extra-biblical writers, know full well that Paul lived, was a Pharisee, was a Hebrew, was a persecutor of the way. I want to ask you a question. What changed him? How did Saul of Tarsus become Paul the Apostle? He was standing there approving of Stephen's martyrdom. He stood there when the very first Christian was martyred and held the cloaks of the men who were stoning Stephen to death. He heartily approved of it. In Acts chapter 8 verse 1, the Bible says that he was breathing out murderous threats against the people of God. And he was getting letters to go up uh, on the Damascus Road to go up and to bring believers out, rip them away from their children, and put them in prison. He gave his amen to the stoning of the very first martyr for the Christian faith. And Paul will later describe himself as a persecutor of the church of God. He hated Christians. Who in our world do you know that hates Christians? Muslims. Go ahead and say it. Jihadists. They hate Christians. Do you know that the most apt description of the Apostle Paul was a jihadist? You do know that, I hope. That was what Saul was. He was on a holy war to stamp out anyone who followed this phony pseudo-Messiah called Jesus Christ. That's, that was his goal, folks. And he thought he was doing God a favor to do it. But on the Damascus Road, en route to imprison and kill Christians, Paul was himself imprisoned by the Lord of glory. And Jesus, in all of his glory, appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And Saul of Tarsus, when he did open his eyes after his blindness for three days, turned into not a persecutor of the church, but a proponent. The greatest opponent of the life of Christ in the early church was Saul of Tarsus. And he ends up being the number one proponent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Talk about a 180 degree turn. That's exactly what it was. The very faith he tried to destroy was now the very faith that he preached until he was beheaded for the cause of Christ. He also here specifies James. And why is that important? Y'all remember the little interchange with James and his family? About Jesus, his older half-brother? He thought he was a phony. As a matter of fact, he started thinking, what in the world is this guy doing? He's an embarrassment to the family. You can find this in Mark's Gospel. And here is James, who made fun of his older half-brother. But after the resurrection... James becomes a born-again believer in his half-older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he becomes his Savior. We could go on and on. But the resurrection is the greatest evidence there is for the Christian faith. Christianity took its shape because the tomb was empty. Recently, there was a poll of people in the United States of America who would say, Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave? Did you know that over 70% of people in the United States said yes? But did you know that it's not enough just to believe the fact? 
Correct? It's not enough. And that brings us to the final point. We must embrace for ourselves the life-changing implications, the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The meaning of the fact goes beyond just the tomb being empty. It is not simply an an historical fact to believe. It is a life-changing reality for all of history and for our future. And if you believe in the resurrection, and you you actually understand the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus... The Bible will remind you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means that life has changed cosmically and personally if you are in Christ Jesus. You can't get around the significance for yourself in regard to the empty tomb this morning. You can't merely accept the fact of the resurrection without seeing the radical life-changing implications and what it means for you and me That Jesus stepped out of the grave alive. It speaks of who He is. It speaks of His person. And here's the deal. It speaks of what He came to do for sinners. It's not some big sentimentality issue, much like we celebrate at Christmas, because you got this real nice creation, real nice little uh, display, and we miss the meaning. Well, just the sentimentality. Hey, this... For Christians, there's a resurrection from the dead. Look, folks, it's more than that. He came to save sinners. He came to save you from sin. At the end of the day, we're talking about a person. It's not just an empty tomb, but who came out of that tomb? That's the issue. It's the person and the work of the very one who was placed in the tomb. This is all about the person and work of the Son of God. And if you're going to sit here today and you're going to sing the songs that you believe the fact... You must acknowledge the claims of the one, the very person that came out of the tomb and the work that was accomplished by the one who came out of the tomb. What did he come to do? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the truth. Folks, when he stepped forth out of that grave, he authenticated that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man will come to the Father except through him. That's what he did when he came forth from the grave. He proved that. There's no other way to God. And I stand here this morning on the authority of the Word of God and tell you that the idea that there are many roads that lead to heaven, and as long as you've got faith in something, you're going to be fine, that is bogus and a lie of the enemy. Jesus conquered, the death, conquered death, folks, and came forth from the grave. And He alone holds the keys. When you've got the keys, you've got all authority to unlock whatever you want to unlock. And I'm going to tell you, folks, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And he proved it by coming forth from the grave. You see, the fact is one thing, the significance is another. The meaning for your life is different. To say you believed in the empty tomb and to deny that you are a sinner and that you are in need of a Savior is the biggest disconnect in all of life. If you say he came forth from the grave, if you say he's the only way, truth, and the life, and you sit there in your sin and don't see your need for Him to save you, that is the biggest disconnect in all of life. And I hope the Holy Spirit of God will magnify uh, the vileness of all of our sin before the Lord. You do understand that's why He went to the hill of Calvary. When the Father turned His back on His Son, it was the fact that He was bearing your sin and my sin in that body on the tree. He that knew no sin became sin for us. That the very righteousness of God might be in us. What an exchange. He takes your sin. He gives you His righteousness. When you believe and trust in Him. The resurrection validates John 3.16. 
You see it at every ball game. Somebody sticks up John 3.16. But do you know the ramifications of it? In this manner, God loved the world that He gave His only unique Son that whoever will not perish. It validates John 3.16. If you're going to accept the fact of the resurrection, then you need to embrace all the implications and what that means in this world and you, what it means for you personally. To believe in the resurrection is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And not only did He resurrect from the grave, but He ascended into heaven. And folks, He controls the world. He rules. Remember that? Uh, joy to the world. He rules the world. He reigns supreme. Matthew 28 says, after the resurrection, all authority to has, has been given to Him. If you put Christ's authority on this side of the balance beam... And all the authority of the world on this side, this side will go up like air. He has all authority. All authority. And Revelation 1.10 says that he was dead and he is now alive and he has the keys of death and heaven. That's our Lord who holds them. To believe in the resurrection is to acknowledge he is both Lord and Christ. Here's a question. Is he your Lord? Well, that hits home, right? Is He your Lord? Is He your Christ? Is He your Messiah? Is He your Savior? And according to this text, He's the reigning King, right? Is He your King? The gospel of grace pivots here upon personal pronouns. My. Our. Right? Is He your Savior? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means that He, I can tell you today, is my Savior, my Lord, my King. And here's the deal. He demands faith and obedience from you because He is the King. He demands that you come the only way you can come. And that's in surrendering to self and trusting Jesus only for salvation to forgive you of your debt. One final verse and we're done. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Listen to this verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Did y'all know that Peter was an eyewitness of the resurrection? And when the resurrection of Christ is personally applied to your life through the power of the Word and the Holy Spirit, it gives us a resurrection of sorts in this text, and it's called to be born unto. The psalm they sang, He called my name. I ran out of the grave. You know what that's meaning. It doesn't mean that we were literally with him when he ran out of the grave. However, uh, the Bible does say that we are co-seated at the right hand of the Father even now, and you're not even there yet. That's pretty awesome. But he called my name, and I ran forth from the grave. means that you were dead in trespasses and sin, but through the work of the Holy Spirit and the preached Word of God, God resurrected your heart when you believed. That's what happened. It's a new birth. We become new and God makes us alive to God. I now have a hope that is confident in Christ, both now and the age to come. Paul would say, what can they do to me now? For to live is Christ and to die is gain. It gave him that kind of hope. And now I have a hope that is confident in Christ today and the age to come. I realize that my future is secure and I am sound and safe with the Lord. I'm forgiven. All my sins are washed away. 
I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What does that mean? God can never hold my sin against me again. Because I'm clothed with the righteousness of His Son. That ought to make you smile on Easter. Right? Because if He didn't come out of the grave, then your faith is dead. And you're, you're still in your sins. But hallelujah, I'm not in my sins today. Right? I still sin. But according to the Father, when He looks at me, I'm clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. That's awesome. That ought to give you the joy of Resurrection Sunday. Now, many of you have been born again to a living hope. You've embraced Him by grace through faith. You understand what transformation took place in your life when Christ took you from a place of being dead and making you alive. You realize this. You've been raised spiritually, and you now have eyes to see, much like one of the songs we sang. In other words, you have a hope and a confidence in the Lord. If that's true, you ought to be the loudest singer in this building. Right? Your sin's been washed away. That you're right with the Lord. That you have a hope that when that body is in the ground, your soul is with the Lord. But that's not the end. The Lord shall ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's coming in the future, right? God's going to resurrect even your body. Why? Because Jesus came forth from the grave. This morning, however, it's not good news for everybody in here. I hope it becomes good news. But it's highly possible that you are here today and you're not alive in Christ. But I want to tell you this morning, you're not here by accident. You're actually here by divine appointment. God brought you here one more time to hear that the Son of God is alive. It may be the last time you hear it, but God brought you here today to tell you that His Son lives and that He died according to the Scripture for our sins. As collective, we're all sinners, even the preacher, and we're all in need of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You will have, uh, your sins will be, though they be as scarlet, Isaiah they shall be washed white as snow. You'll be clothed in the very righteousness of Christ that's not your own, but His. You'll have a hope and a confidence of eternal life in Christ. You desperately need to hear today that Jesus Christ is alive and that you can be born again through the Lord Jesus Christ if you repent and believe and turn to Christ only for salvation. You can be saved. Don't let another Resurrection Sunday pass by without you encountering the risen Christ. To God be the glory. In the Greek, He is risen is Hegerte. Man, can you just imagine the disciples running down those roads in their dusty sandals saying Hegerte. He is risen. Oh folks, let that resonate in your mind and in your heart. He is risen. Billy Graham used to make it popular when he would say this in evangelistic crusades. A dead Savior can't save anyone. Folks, he's alive. And he's mighty to save. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, for the invitation. Lord, I know that you have believers here that believe in the fact. And it's been evidentiary in their hearts, experience. They've trusted you. And they've been saved. But Lord, I also know that there could be people here that are lost in their sins. And Father, I would pray that you would open their eyes, that you would quicken their spirit, make them alive. May they believe in the resurrection of Christ.
May they believe in the gospel. Paul says, of first importance, I delivered to you that Christ Jesus died for our sins. That he was buried. And on the third day, according to the scriptures, he rose again. Hallelujah for the King. Hallelujah for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, may you save sinners. May they turn to you and trust you only to be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.